They called her the general, the conductor of the Underground Railroad. Most notably, her name, they called her Moses. Do you know who I'm talking about? Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. Uh, born around 1820, history is unsure of the exact date of her birth. Harriet escaped slavery in 1849. Between 1850 and 1860, she returned to the South on uh, what's documented as 13 rescue missions, uh, retrieving enslaved men, women, and children. Some have estimated that in those 10 years, as many as 300 uh, were uh, released and, and saved from slavery. When the Civil War came, Harriet was the first woman to lead an assault at the Combahee River Raid. She helped free 700 slaves. Finally, in 1899, she received her Civil War pension. She had brain surgery in the uh, late 19th century, <laughs> brain surgery then. She refused anesthesia. She just chewed on a bullet like the soldiers did. And at the ripe old age of 93, the year 1913, she died. Harriet Tubman. When she was around 12, Harriet had a severe head injury that affected her the rest of her life. She had a form of uh, narcolepsy. She would be talking, uh, standing up, and then suddenly she would just go to sleep. She'd go unconscious for three or four minutes. And along with this came a lifetime of visions and dreams that she described as an Old Testament prophet would describe. And those visions and dreams literally helped her see her world, especially when it came to those rescue missions back in the South. She called it consulting with the Lord, where she would, in her spirit, in her soul, hear the Lord say, go this way, not that way. And she followed those directions uh, uh, rigorously. Her, her spirit had this mysterious sensitivity to the divine. And when God consulted with Harriet, you didn't argue. For instance, on one rescue mission, she was uh, helping 25 men, women, and children. And uh, one of the men wanted to go back. He was spooked. She said, can't go back. It will, in jeopard, it will jeopardize your life and the lives of everybody else. And, but he still was spooked. He said, no, I want to go back. She said, you can't go back. Well, I, I just, I can't go forward. She said, you're going to go forward. It's, it, you, it, it's time to move. And, and he kept resisting. And finally, she pulled out a pistol and put it to his head and said, move or die. And he moved. <laughs> and, and two days later, he was in Canada. <laughs> Thomas Garrett 
uh, was an abolitionist and uh, one of the leaders of the Underground Railroad. He was an avid supporter of Harriet. And he, this is what he said, I have never met any person who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And he didn't argue with her either. He ran a dry goods store, and one day Harriet came into his store, and the first thing out of her mouth was, the Lord told me that you have some money for me. And Garrett said, has he ever deceived you? <laughs> she said, never. And so he said, well, how much did he say you needed? <laughs> she said around $23. So he gave her 24. <laughs> what a remarkable woman in our history. And any student of history would acknowledge the anxiety in which Harriet Tubman lived, anxiety in her life, anxiety of slavery, anxiety of oppression, anxiety of her own escape, anxiety of, of the rescue missions that she conducted. Had she been captured on any one of those trips, her life would have ruthlessly ended. And yet Harriet persevered in her anxious world because she could see the larger picture of God's provision. In her anxious world, she could see the larger picture of God's provision. And that's where we're going this morning in our series on anxiety. Anxiety and the peace of God. Now, as we talked about last week, we said, you know, when we experience anxiety, it's easy to feel, it's easy to feel shame. It's easy to feel like somehow God is disappointed with us. But beloved church family, would you please hear me? God has provided some of the kindest words for those who struggle with anxiety. Are you feeling anxious this morning? Well, prepare yourself because you are about to receive the kindness of God. I'm thinking of Psalm 27, 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And then this beautiful verse in Psalm 27, 3. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, in this I will be confident. Would you please read this verse with me on three, one, two, three. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. This is God's word. Now there is a scripture this morning that sheds light on that last verse. Psalm 27, 3. And I want to share it with you this morning. 
If you have your Bibles, meet me in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. You'll find that on page 312 of your church Bibles. And these verses deal with the question, how, how can I see God's provision in my anxious situation? What, what, what is God's provision in my anxious situation? What's the nature, what's the content of God's provision in my anxious situation? The, these verses, I love these verses um, for several reasons. First of all, these verses are just unfamiliar. Maybe you've read these before, but we're going to really dive into these verses. But they're, they're, they're unfamiliar verses, and, and they tell us about God's provision in an unexpected manner. That's the second reason I like it. And the third reason is because it points to Christ. It points to Christ. What is God's provision in my anxious situation? And so when you're having a spiritual conversation with a fellow struggler of anxiety, these are great verses to consider because they, can, they, show us, they show us how Scripture can meet you where you are. And if you will expose yourself to the truth of God's Word, it will help your anxiety. It will. Listen, truth is kryptonite to anxiety. Okay. Uh, one of you taught me that last week after services. You came up to me and you showed me your phone, which normally I'm not really impressed by. <laughs> I was that week, wow. Showed me Puerto Rico. And then showed me the over 300 earthquakes that have afflicted uh, Puerto Rico since December the 28th. And how 8,000 people are living outside, terrified to go inside because of the next earthquake. And is it going to collapse? And then you said to me, here's how the anxiety was alleviated. The residents were instructed to take a glass of water and set it on the counter, clear glass, and when you are feeling anxious about an earthquake, look at the water. Look at the glass. If the water is still, you're safe. Isn't that wonderful? So there's objective truth outside yourself that can help you in your anxiety. Truth is kryptonite to anxiety. Look at the water. Look at the water. Let's look at some water here. Huh? 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 12 is where we'll start. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Syria sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. 
And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So our story begins. We jump right into the middle of a story between two kingdoms that are in conflict, two nations that are in conflict. Let me give you just a quick background. The United Kingdom of Israel under uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, the golden age of Israel, about a thousand years before Christ, 1,900 years before Christ, the United Kingdom of Israel after Solomon split into the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. All right? Now, this passage of Scripture relates to the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, which was even further north. The king of Syria is frustrated because he's trying to pin down the northern Israelite army, but every time his orders go out, there's a leak. And then Israel's king finds out, and he spoils the Syrian king's plans. And so here the scripture begins with the Syrian king barking out, who's the traitor here? Who's responsible for the leak? That's what's going on in verse 11. And so his cabinet of servants gather around him and say, well, it's, you don't have any traitors among us. It's not us. It's that, see the phrase, man of God. Who is that? That's none other than Elisha, the prophet of of Israel there in the northern kingdom. Verse 12, he tells the king of Israel the words, you speak in your bedroom. Your highness, your bedroom is bugged, man. To which the king says in verse 13, and by the way, this passage of scripture contains so much really kind of melodramatic humor or irony or satire because the historian, the narrator, is trying to make a point. So the political leaders don't really, they're not really the sharpest knives in the drawer in this passage of Scripture. And here, I'll, I'll show you why. The king says, well, well, well go, go see him where he is. Go get him and bring him here. Which is kind of humorous, isn't it? Because, you know, okay, so if Elisha can divine the plans of the Syrian king, he's going to divine that plan. He's going to see him coming. And that seems to be aware to everyone except that king. Hmm. So he sent, he sent his forces, his forces. Verse 14, he sent horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and they surrounded the city. Think gladiator. Think the very first battle scene. Maximus. Strength and honor. 
Let my signal unleash hell. That kind of thing is going on. For how many people? What? That's excessive, don't you think? See what I'm saying? Not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So they go by night, and they surround the city. Now, can you imagine waking up the first thing in the morning, and you put on your robe and your slippers, and you let your dog out, and you decide to step outside to see what the day's going to be like. Maybe you live where you can see the sun rise and the steam's rising above your coffee, and you can see your breath, and you kind of zip up your jacket over your robe, and you just kind of take a deep breath, the morning cold air, and you just sense something's not right. So you look out, and suddenly anxiety closes in. Behold, look at verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Now, now note the time. It's first thing in the morning. You were just asleep. Your bed was warm. You were comfortable. And now, in a split second, I mean in a split second, death is at your door. And it's a real threat. Church family, sometimes we minimize anxiety by locating it solely as something psychological or emotional or otherwise internal. The scripture is much broader than that. When the scriptures speak of anxiety, in addition to these, there is also, there's an objective reality present. So anxiety is not just about my feelings. The fact is, bad things really do happen. Psalm 27.3 said, Though an army encamp against me. We have enemies. Armies. They have sharp objects in their hands. This is serious. You could die. People do every day. To experience anxiety means that you're alive and sensitive to the danger. And anxiety is the pressure that you are alone in a world too big and too dark and too uncontrollable and too dangerous and you can't fix it. Something negative is about to happen to someone or something you care about. And, and so the inevitable question from the servant in verse 15 is very understandable, is it not? What's his question? Look, what shall we do? What shall we, what's your version of the servant's words in verse 15? Hmm? What shall we do? Well, here's something to do. Name it. Name it. Verse 15, right? Uh, that's an army. Name it. On paper. On paper. So what, what is causing your anxiety? Death? Health? Relationship? School? Work? How many is that? Five. Good. Five is not infinite. 
Five is five. Now then, which of these five does God want me to address today? A relationship? Okay, which one? On paper. On paper. My teenager. Uh, I want to change my teenager. Okay. Really, that's beyond your pay grade. Okay. Well, but I'm a parent. Yes. And your job today is to love your teenager. And sometimes that looks like tender love. And sometimes that looks like tough love. Your, your, job, your job is to love them hard and discipline them hard and leave the changing to God. See? Sh shepherding their hearts toward God. See? Put it down on paper. Identify it. Name it. Name it. Name it. Because truth is kryptonite to anxiety. And look what God did. Verse 16. Let's keep going. Elisha said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So God pulls back the curtain so that this anxious young soul could see what Elisha saw. The concrete, palpable experience of God's presence and power. In the pit of the servant's anxiety, God graciously revealed his provision. Though that servant felt small before the Syrians, once his eyes were opened, he saw both himself and his enemy in the massive shadow of the Almighty. Yes, your anxieties are bigger than you. Both you and your anxieties are pint-sized before the God who is for you. He's on your side. So whatever the enemies of Israel bring, what God brings is greater. Amen. Syrians brought horses and chariots. God brought chariots of fire. And he will always do this. He ultimately did this in the sending of his son into the world. Jesus Christ is the strong warrior king who comes to save his people. But here's my question. What do you think is going to happen next? Huh? What do you think is going to happen next in this account? Well, there's chariots of fire, and there's heavenly horses, and there's angelic swords unleashed. I know what's going to happen. We're going to see some fireworks. Huh? Some Syrians are about to get sunburned. This is going to be fun. It kind of reminds me of the resistance that Jesus faced in Luke chapter 9, verses 53 and 54. And when his disciples James and John saw it, what? The resistance. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You know, as Elijah did. 
Children. We're, we're, not just, we're not just guessing that the Syrians are going to get wiped out now. We're kind of hoping for it. Right? That's where I want the story to go. God, show up and incinerate the threat. Huh? Lord, I have some thoughts about how I think you should alleviate my angst. And so, could you please just kind of scoot over on your throne? Self-expression is important to me. That's not where the story goes, is it? Is it? Why? Because God does not obligate himself to my preferences for anxiety alleviation. So what happens? The Syrians attack. That's what happens. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, they came down against him. At that point, Elisha prays, please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness according to the prayer of Elisha. So do you see the vision given and taken in these verses? On one hand, Elisha prays that his servant's eyes will see reality as it is. On the other hand, he prays that the Syrians' eyes are kept from seeing reality. They were struck with blindness. I don't take that as groping in the dark. I take that to mean that somehow, in some miraculous way, and listen, if you struggle with supernatural and the miraculous, you're going to naturally struggle with this. But I don't struggle with this, church family. I, the most difficult verse in the Bible to believe is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you believe that, you can believe every other verse that follows. So I don't have any problem believing this. It seems that these Syrians' eyes are kept from seeing reality. And so the Syrians are searching for Elisha, but they're not able to recognize him. And again, it's kind of satirical and it's kind of humorous. Look at verse 19. They come down and attack and they meet this guy. And this guy says, well, who are you looking for? Well, let me help. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So, so the guy that they're looking to kidnap actually now has kidnapped them. <laughs> Not only were they unaware of who led them, they were unaware of where he was leading them. So they finally get to the destination in Samaria, inside the city, and Elisha prays again, Oh Lord, open their eyes. Look at verse 20. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. That's in the northern kingdom. Now who's surrounded? How, how did this happen? I'll tell you how this happened. This happened by means of the only person who is named in this story. The only person named here in these verses. Who? Elisha. The man of God. Elisha. Yahweh is my salvation. That's how that happened. Oh, but we're not done yet. What do you think is going to happen next? So the chariots of fire won't finish the Syrians off. Maybe Israel's army 
will. In fact, the king of Israel kind of sees this as just kind of a wonderful gift. He's like a kid in a candy store. And, and he says to Elisha, verse 21, now get this, he's the king of Israel, and yet he calls Elisha father. He says, my father, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? I mean, should I, should I? He has to ask twice. He's salivating. He's kind of like this attack dog waiting to be unleashed. Can I, dad? Can I? Can I? Can I? No, 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 no. That's not the plan either. Verse 22. Elisha says, don't kill them, feed them. You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Verse 23. So he prepared for them a great feast. Now, what's that like? Well, you're the captain of a company, and you're waiting for your CO to give the word attack, and instead, the order is feed. <laughs> what? For a moment there, you're putting together a battle plan. Instead, you're planning a menu. Well, why would God command a banquet instead of a battle? I'll tell you why. Isaiah tells us why. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither my ways are your ways, declares the Lord. There's gospel truth here concerning the God who gives grace to those who deserve to die. You hear some gospel there? This is our God. He overturns the enemy through grace. I'm thinking of Dr. King's sermon, Loving Your Enemies. If you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them even though they're mistreating you. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love. It is redemptive. And that's why Jesus commands love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destruction, that is destructive. So love your enemies. And look at verse 23. He prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Don't you see what's going on here? Elisha, Yahweh is salvation, has brought salvation in a way that points us to Jesus, whose name means the Lord saves. The Lord brings salvation through the very thing with which we struggle. Our anxiety, your anxiety, is an opportunity for love. It's the occasion for God to defeat the brokenness of this world. In Christ, God has put our suffering and our anxiety and our struggle on his son. He put it on him to defeat it. And the lasting effects of anxiety were defeated on the cross and the resurrection Jesus has won. And the sending of the Spirit's fire promises us more than chariots of fire. Can the point be any clearer? God uses anxiety so that we will rely on him 
and live in peace with others. Mm. That's what this says. And you see, it's a part of Israel's history. First and second Kings was written when Israel was in Babylon. They're in exile. Why are we in exile? Because your ancestors were unfaithful to God. But even then, in the anxiety of exile, God is a God of mercy and provision. So go back to his word. Go back to the notes in your Bible. Go back to remind yourself of the many ways that God is faithful and has come through. And that he is at work even when you can't see him. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. It means I need my eyes opened. He's faithful. He will come through. Church family, in your anxiety quake, your glass of water is the empty tomb. The most notable person in chapter 6 is Elisha, who points us to God and ultimately Christ. The most notable activity that Elisha does to show reliance is prayer prayer. Have you tried it when you're anxious? Have you met your anxiety with thoughtful scripture-led prayer? It's one of the hidden and underused treasures of scripture. Prayer only sounds trite if you haven't tried it. The command to pray is a simple command, but like love one another, it takes a lifetime to master. And those who consistently respond to anxiety with prayer are sages in our midst. And too often we brush off this passage for some other passage that you know, we're hoping has more oomph to it. But I'm telling you, as Elisha prayed, that's, that's what God is calling us to do to the God of salvation. And my challenge is to shorten the lag time between the appearance of anxiety and the onset of prayer. From days to hours to minutes. <laughs> Wouldn't it be something if instead of responding to anxiety with prayer, our prayers assaulted our anxieties? That, that we were a prayer looking for an anxiety. Wow. I know left alone, I can only spin out doomsday scenarios. But prayer reminds me that God is near and that I matter to him. And so do the Syrians. Hmm. You know, for Israel, either the enemy was near or God was near. And if God is near, then I'm good. And the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus has removed all barriers between the Father and ourselves. And by, by grace through faith, he is now not just with us. He's in us. He's in us. Could there be a more profound answer to our anxiety? Next time anxiety comes knocking, don't answer the door. Talk to Jesus. And why? Last sentence. I steadier step when I recall that though I slip, thou dost not fall. Amen.